Hello, everybody. How are we doing tonight? Pretty good. Hello. Hi, random people who said my name. I appreciate you, whoever you are out there. Hey, Zoom people. I always want to keep you guys in the loop as well. Glad you guys are tuning in on the interwebs. That is a word I just used. So, well, hey, hope you guys are having a great week. Uh, everybody have a good Labor Day? Yeah? Anybody go home for Labor Day? Who went home for Labor Day? Cool. You guys, you violators of UA's guidelines, leaving Tuscaloosa. I'm, I'm kidding. So, um, Well, cool. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, if you got a Bible, we're going to be a couple places tonight, um, but if you want to have a place to start, we're going to be in Genesis 3 to begin, which we've been there a couple of times recently, but it's kind of a theme going here. Uh, but if I haven't met you, I'm Kyle. I'm the college pastor here at the church. Uh, so glad to have you tonight. I know we got some new people in the room. Uh, but if you're new with us, we're doing a series we've been doing, I guess, for the past three weeks now. We're on week three. Uh, we're calling True False. And I think it's, look at that, it's on the screen. Uh, we're doing lies about God uh, that sound true. And so we've talked about a couple of these lies so far. You know, things like God just wants you to be happy. Uh, is this thing dying on me? That'd be very sad. It oh, no. Oh, no. We're going to use this. Hey, uh, Noah, can I get you to go get some uh, batteries for this thing wherever you're at? Wherever, he may, may have left the room. So, Lance, he also knows sound. He can go get some batteries as well. I have no idea what kind of batteries it takes. Everybody give a hand for Lance. Thank you, Lance. All right. Can you guys hear me? This okay? Cool. All right, perfect. So, I'll keep on rolling. All right, so we're doing a series. Uh, we've been talking about God just wants her to be happy is one lie. Last week, we talked about YOLO, you only live once, being a lie. This week, uh, we're taking on the Oprah-ism of you just need to live your truth is week three. You just need to live your truth. And I'll, I'll define that as we get going. But as we start, have you ever been caught in the awkward situation where you don't know which side of the truth to believe from people? I say you have like two friends who have a private conversation, you know, and, and they walk away from that conversation with two different versions of how that conversation went. You ever been there before? They come to you, you're like, oh man, like I, I'm close to both of y'all. I don't know which interpretation of this to believe. You may have been there before. If you haven't, you live long enough, you'll have that happen. Um, but it's an awkward place to be, and it becomes a, a game of like his word versus their word, right? Or his versus his, hers versus hers. And it can be a weird place to be. But, you know, that's hard enough when it comes to friends, but, you know, imagine that played out in culture as well, like we see sometimes today, that we have competing versions of what is, you know, the truth. Like politicians are famous for this, right? That they'll get into, you know, all these debates about the definition of words that we have always agreed to what they mean. Like Bill Clinton went on and on about the definition of what is is, you know, to defend himself in different ways and things like that. And then also medicine has this happen today. We have so many different interpretations even of data, you know, with COVID and things like that. I'm not getting into that controversy. I'm just saying there's even in medicine, something that we've many years have believed is like science. <laughs> we've come to find there's even interpretation of truth in that. And even in our entertainment, this happens too. Like we love shows like Making a Murder. Anybody watch Making a Murder? Man, okay, thank you. Like the two people, why, okay, I'm, I, I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, or Tiger King, anybody, Tiger King, yeah. Confession, I didn't watch Tiger King, but I've heard there's some like crime mystery in there about it. I'm like one of the few people who didn't watch Tiger King during COVID. Um, but even that's there. So we love this kind of stuff. Like we love seeking out the truth, you know, like the X-Files, you know, the truth is out there kind of thing. We, we love seeking out the truth. But what happens when the truth becomes something that's up for interpretation, when it's your truth? 
and when it's my truth and we can't agree on it. Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight is this lie of you need to live your truth, your version of it. So we're going to do this in three steps. Uh, really simple tonight. We're going to talk about the lie, the why. You like that rhyme there? And then I don't have a rhyme for the third one. And then our response. Okay, I couldn't come up with a rhyme. I'm sorry. All right. Sorry about that, okay? Uh, Southern Baptist preacher guy is upset with me now. So, but the lie, the why, and then our response, okay? So with that, let's start in Genesis 3. Uh, we're, we're probably going to come back to this text multiple times throughout this series. But let's read these verses one more time, 1 through 7, looking at the temptation of Adam and Eve. Uh, one thing I found about Genesis 1 through 3 is like, man, you could preach years on this stuff. Because last year we did our Loveology series on relationships, and we pretty much spent the whole time in Genesis 2, because like, and three, but there's so much in here. So if you're looking for a place to study in the Bible, man, the first three chapters are pretty good to start with. All right, but anyway, so Genesis 3, 1 through 7 says this, verse 1. Now the serpent, serpent being Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, and get this, pay close attention to these words. We'll come back to these in a minute. But so when the woman saw that the tree was three things, it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also, also gave some to her husband who was with her. So he's in this as well. He's not off doing something else. He's beside her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, let's pray together. Father, Just kidding. I tried to do a really cool mic exchange that did not work. And now we're going to pray. The Lord understands. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Uh, Lord, we love you. We ask you would open our hearts to receive your word, to see the truth of tonight, to see what you want to teach us, um, to see that you are the truth that we should seek That in a world that many times debates on. Is there even a thing as truth that you are the truth, you are the way or the life, that we can seek you and we can confront even twisted truth that Satan may throw at us. We can confront it with your truth, that it is written, that we can put full confidence um, in who you are and what you say. We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so real quick, look at Genesis 3 for just a moment. So look in this chapter, you see that the serpent begins with, yet again, we've said this multiple times, but he begins with the seed of doubt about whether God actually said what he actually said. You kind of see that, that Satan's kind of putting some debate in here. He caused Adam and Eve to doubt the truthfulness of God. He says to Eve, did, did God actually say to eat the fruit? And essentially what happens is that he gets Adam and Eve, they're both there, to believe a different version of the story of what happened earlier with God. If you want to say it, he, he kind of gives them a twisted truth to believe and then encourages them to act accordingly. So like we talked about with his word versus their word, this, in this story is kind of a, it becomes a matter of God's word versus Satan's word in the end. And sadly, they, they kind of trust Satan's word in the end. But here's the thing. We see Satan doing this kind of thing, this twisting of truth over and over again in the Bible and over and over again in history. Uh, you don't have to necessarily flip there, but consider it just in John 18. I think it's going to be on the screen. Just in John 18, a conversation Jesus has with Pilate before his crucifixion. And in John 18, 37 and 38, it says, Then Pilate said to him, him being Jesus, 
So you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? He questions truth right there. We see that Pilate didn't want to be confronted with the truth of who Christ said he was. So what does he do? He dodges it, right? He dodges it by avoiding even defining what truth is, by not even claiming there's anything that even exists called actual truth. And this has become very common even in mainstream culture today, that, you know, it's become common to say that truth is simply dependent on your experience, that truth is simply dependent on your perspective, you know? We maybe wouldn't say always that we believe in relative truth, that there's no such thing as absolute truth, but we have at least sometimes embraced this idea that truth is simply dependent on your experience, on your emotions, on your viewpoint, which really puts us right in line with Pilate to say, well, what is truth? Like, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And so culturally today, there's definitely this belief that experience, emotions, perspective dictate what is true, and it's based simply on us. You know, and you'll say what's true for you is what's true for you, and what's true for me is what's true for me. But here's the thing. That idea is really dangerous if you begin to boil it down and think more about it. If truth is really simply a matter of perspective and our feelings and emotions, if it's simply based on us, that's super dangerous because it's going to shape the way we view the world, and it's really going to erode really the very fabric of society, if we're honest. I just consider this. You know, there's a book in the Bible where everyone follows the, the lie of, hey, just live your truth. And it's called the book of Judges. You ever, you ever read the book of Judges before? It does not go well in that book. The end of the book says that, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that they all lived out their own truth. And if you read Judges, it is just full of jacked up stuff all the time, all throughout the book. You know, it's full of debauchery and violence and wickedness and just evil that happens. And that's the thing, that chaos ends up being the natural result of us following uh, this lie. But I, I get that most people in the room probably understand this. You've probably been in the church for a bit. You're a Christian. You probably understand some of this. But I don't think Christians are immune to this lie either in many ways. Because Christians embrace this lie, maybe not when we embrace like a relative truth. Like we probably wouldn't say, yeah, truth's not absolute. We wouldn't agree with that. But Christians can embrace the truth when, we, when we're confronted with a hard thing God tells us, and we're like, you know what, like, that doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception to that. Like, that doesn't apply to me. That's true for somebody else, maybe, but not for me. Let me just give you a couple of examples. You know, we we read things, like 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says this, it's bad company corrupts good character. All right, it's kind of a proverb there. Bad company corrupts good character. But sometimes we read that and say, okay, well, that's maybe true for somebody else, but, you know, I'm strong enough to where, yeah, I can spend the vast majority of my time hanging out with people that don't love Jesus, and it won't affect me. Like, it won't be a negative influence on me, you know? I'm not saying you shouldn't have non-Christian friends. You need to. If you don't, you're, you're not following Jesus and being, like, friends of people who didn't know him. You know, like, we're called to, you know, be intentional with our relationships. But we've got to recognize that the people we spend the most time around have a huge impact on us. So we have to be wise in that. So it's, it's foolish to say that, yeah, I can spend way, most of my time with non-Christian friends and that not have an impact on me, all right? Another way that we can do this is that we can read another part of 1 Corinthians, like 1 Corinthians 6.18. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. And we'll say, okay, yeah, 
that's true for other people, but not for me. You know, I can watch this show or this movie. I can follow this account online and it won't lead me to lust. You know, it won't lead me to sexual sin. I'm stronger than that. That's true for somebody else, but not for me. Even though God clearly gives us this warning for a reason, you know. And so Christians can do this just as much. It's just a more religious version of, of the lie, all right. We think it's true for somebody else, but not for me. So we're all tempted in this way to believe this lie in some capacity. So that's the lie. So let's talk about then the why, all right. Like why do we buy into this? Why as a society, why as individuals do we bind this? Well, I'll give you three reasons. These are alliterated, so you're welcome, okay? So these are three reasons I think we, we bind to it. It's Satan, it's selfishness, and it's society, all right? So we got three S's, all right? But Satan, selfishness, and society. What do I mean by that? Well, the first one is this. We, we can't forget that Satan has a big role in us believing these lies that lead us to live apart from God. That that Satan doesn't want us to acknowledge that there actually is truth to be believed in the world and followed, especially truth about God. Uh, Consider 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, it'll be on the screen. Paul writing to Timothy says this, and the Lord's servant, in this case he's talking about Timothy as a pastor, he says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, these opponents, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And this is interesting. We don't think about, like, we think about Satan as like a guy with pointy horns that kind of holds a pitchfork. And we don't think about how deceptive he is in life. But Paul says here that these people, they need a knowledge of the truth. They need to come to their senses, and they have to escape this trap of the devil that they're caught in. And he says that Satan's trap is this, is that, you know, Satan wants us, you know, kind of high on our own intelligence. He wants us high on our own intellect and ability to know things as they are, even if that means rejecting what seems obvious sometimes. That he wants us to think that we know it enough and that we're good, that we're strong enough, that we don't need to believe God's wisdom. And really what Satan does is he many times commits deception by deflection. He commits deception by deflection. That any time we're maybe faced with the hard truth, like, hey, this is something you need to do, something you don't need to do, like the hard truth that maybe is difficult to obey. Anytime we're faced with that, he wants us to not say, okay, I'll do that. Like I'll die to myself and, and respond to the truth. Instead, he wants us to deflect. He wants us to look at it differently and say, you know what? Like that doesn't apply to me. Or, you know, it can't mean that. It can't mean what it says, right? It has to mean something different. He wants us to seek to justify the way we're already living and believing and not have to make the change. That's because Satan wants really us to, be, to have our allegiance to him through being allegiant to ourself. He wants our allegiance to him by way of our allegiance to ourself, all right? I said the word allegiant. I don't know if that's a word, but it should be. You get what I mean, right? Okay. Um, sounds like it should be a young adult novel, Allegiant, all right? Um, all right, but here's the thing. Consider another story in the Bible, like Divergent. Okay, that was my joke. All right, so um, didn't read the books. I watched the movies, okay? Is it really? Oh, th- there we go. It's in my brain. Y'all, you don't want to know what goes on in my head half the time I'm up here, okay? Anyway, but moving on. So consider this. Let me give you an example of this story-wise in the Bible, okay? I'll give you an example. You, we know the story of Satan, or sorry, Satan, of Peter and Jesus. Whenever at one point Jesus says, hey, y'all, like, I know you've been following me for a while, and this is going pretty well. I've been casting out demons and healing people, and you're feeling really good about this whole thing. Well, hey, I'm actually going to die. 
Like, I'm going to die. And he tells them he's going to resurrect, but they don't hear that part, right? He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. On the third day, I'll rise again. And what does Peter, the outspoken, bold dude, what does he do? He's like, no, Jesus, Jesus, I will never let that happen. I will not let you die. You know, not going to do it. And how does Jesus respond? The famous thing, he's like, get behind me, who? Satan. You ever thought that was weird? Like, that had to be really hard. Like, get behind me, Satan. You're like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? But so, well, but why would he say Satan there? You know, because he goes on to say, you're not thinking of the things of man, but the things of, so the th- you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. But why would he say that? Well, here's the deal. Peter absolutely loved Jesus. We know that, okay? But Peter also had a lot riding on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Because the Messiah, in their belief at that time, was going to be more of a political um, ruler who overthrew the Romans that were taking that were in charge of Jerusalem at the time. They viewed Jesus as the Messiah who was going to be a political ruler who's going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and start like kind of restart the kingdom of Israel again. And Peter had a lot riding on the fact that this Jesus guy was going to do that. So when Jesus says, "I'm going to die," he's like, "No, that's the opposite of what you, you're going to do. You're going to like kill the Romans, right? And then they're going to die, and you're going to live and rule in Jerusalem." So he had a lot riding on this. So when Peter hears he's going to die, he's like, "No, no, 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 you can't do that." But what Peter does and what Jesus is saying here is Peter was veiling his concern for himself as concern for Jesus. He was making it seem like he cared a lot about Jesus, which he did, but really in his heart of hearts, Christ knew this, that he was really more concerned about his own agenda than Christ's agenda. And that's why Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like your self-protection that's pretending to be loyalty isn't going to work. And he calls it a work of Satan. Jesus says to Peter, like, you want me to believe that your concern here is about me, but really, ultimately, this is about you, that you're making this about you. And that's how Satan works. He works with deception by deflection, that he wants us to be loyal to him by appearing to be loyal to ourselves. Even we think that, right? So he wants us to be mainly focused on ourselves, and we end up being loyal to Satan and not even knowing it. And that's why Jesus would say that to Peter. Because many times, you know, Satan deflects us from the truth by even appealing to our good-natured side. Like, he appeals to our sense of, like, virtue and righteousness and justice. If you don't believe me, just consider how hard it is to forgive somebody when they wrong you, right? When someone wrongs you, what do you want to do? Like, your initial reaction is what? To get back at them, right? Like, you, you, this kind of sense of justice, they need to get what they deserve, kind of wells up in you if you're more of a hot-tempered person especially, and so that's our sense of justice that we want, you know, especially if we were just like, if we were just outright wronged, we had this desire for things to be made right, for them to get what's coming to them, for them to be told off in front of people or something. And Satan will appeal to that in, the, in order for us to not forgive that person, but instead for us to be selfish. But what he does is, you know, instead of just kind of making it outright, like maybe go punch them or something, that Satan's going to appeal to not our sense like anger, he may appeal to our sense of justice. Like, hey, don't you deserve, or they don't, don't they deserve that? Don't you deserve to, you know, have things made right for you? Don't you deserve to be justified in your feeling this way and for this person to get what's coming to them? And when we do that and we fall more into Satan's trap of appealing to our sense of justice instead of our sense of forgiveness like Christ has called us to do, then we fall more and more into his trap. When we, when we focus more on the punishment that person deserves instead of forgiveness, Satan just reels us in more and more into this thing. You know, and as we do that, we ignore more, more and more the forgiveness that we received in Christ on the cross that then compels us to forgive, that frees us to forgive. But Satan doesn't want us focusing on Christ and the cross. He wants us focusing on our own sense of justice to, you know, kind of be made right in this person getting what they deserve. And that's the selfishness that Satan wells up in us 
But he doesn't always spin it that way. He spins it more as a sense of self-preservation and a, a righteous feeling, right? But that's how he gets us. So that's the first thing we see is that Satan is so involved in this lie. But the second thing we see is not just Satan, but it's also our selfishness, okay, our selfishness. Because honestly, you, you know, it makes more emotional sense to us to give in to our natural desires and our cravings. You know, but the truth, like I mentioned before, it usually calls us to deny ourselves, especially in the Christian life. That the truth of following Jesus really calls us to say no to ourselves more often than simply just saying yes. But Satan wants us to appeal to our emotional and natural cravings. But, you know, one way that you can know you're probably being deceived by this lie is that if any new truth you're starting to come to believe is way easier than the old truth. If the new truth you come to believe is simply just way easier than the old truth, you may be in the process of being deceived. Because if the new truth you're kind of embracing requires less sacrifice, if it, require, if it enables you to indulge more in things that the old truth didn't allow, there's a good chance you're being deceived and Satan is leading you into fall into selfishness more and more. Because, you know, yes, many of God's commands for our life are not easy. They call for us to die to ourselves, and they're hard. But here's the thing. God knows more than any of us, more than any human being, what is best for us. He's the one that designed us. He's the one that designed the world. So even though he gives us hard commands to follow sometimes that are difficult, they are ultimately for our good, and they're way better in the long run than simply giving in to our own desires. I like the way that Jackie Hill Perry, an author and poet, says it. She says this. She says, Since God is holy and utterly good by nature, even his harshest commands are worth your obedience. Or to say it another way, if God is as good as he says he is, then every single command is good for you, even if it doesn't feel good to you. You feel that? Like I've felt that many times, that it's good for us, even if it doesn't feel good to us at the moment, right? It's a hard thing to believe, but it's true. So that's the second thing, is that this lie is part of our selfishness. But the third thing here is that the truth, honestly, is many times out of fashion in society. That's the third S there, society. Because if we're honest, in culture today, many times it's more popular to you know, have a deconstruction experience. It's more popular to you know, be an ex-evangelical, a skeptic, a seeker, something like that, than it maybe is to hold to traditional truths of the gospel. You know, and I'll be honest, I'm really glad that we have embraced more as church culture people that doubt and struggle. I think for, for a long time in the church, we kind of, you know, put a lot of negativity on people that struggled in their faith and were doubting because the church needed to be a place to embrace people as they wrestle with hard questions about their faith. When we don't allow people to do that, we really do them a disservice because there's a right way to doubt. And I've had seasons of doubt in my life that have really brought me closer to the Lord and not farther away from him. That doubt can strengthen our faith when done the right way. And so as Christians, we need to be compassionate and understanding of people as they wrestle through deep questions of faith. Absolutely. The church needs to be a place that we can do that. You know, but it does seem to me that as culture, you know, we've moved past just valuing honesty. We've moved, moved past just kind of valuing uh, authenticity. And we've really come to a place now where we value cynicism more than the truth. That we value being cynical and jaded more than holding on to the difficult truth. That we let like emotions and maybe past experiences that define more what's true instead of looking at God's word for what actually is true. You know, we'd rather be jaded. We'd rather come out the other side knowing better, being more 
you know, enlightened to something like that, then actually going back to the foundation of what we believe and really seeing is it trustworthy and coming out stronger. You know, as modern people, we have a tendency to look back on those of the past who were not perfect people, but we have a tendency to look back and say, yeah, we, did, we just know better than them about so many things. And so we know better that we're going to throw away the old truth and come to our new version of the truth, which really many times is simply a lie that we adapt for convenience in modern culture. It's just easy for us to do that. And honestly, that's one of Satan's probably most popular schemes these days is not to get us to like completely throw away our faith and not to get us to completely just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But instead, one of his modern tactics today is to lead us to shape our faith in the image of man and not God. That we make it all about what we like and what our preferences are than what God says in his word. And many times that's difficult. It's not easy. There's lots of complicated questions involved in that. But when we simply give in to our own emotions and feelings about things, which we'll talk more about next week, but when we give more into that as our source of truth than God's actual word, then we're in a dangerous place and we're right where Satan wants us to manipulate us, to be led away. So that's the, the why of why we believe these things. Then lastly, let's talk about um, our response. All right, how do we respond to this? So we spend a lot of time looking at the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. I want to look at another temptation that we see in Scripture. So if you've got a Bible uh, or a device, flip over to Matthew 4. Uh, Matthew 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. We, we saw the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Let's look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. And as you read this, I think you're going to see a lot of parallels here between these two, and that is totally intentional. Uh, in, on many fronts, both as a lit- piece of literature and also the fact that God is kind of sovereign over all things, you know, so he orchestrates stuff like this. All right, so look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Most obvious statement in the Bible. You fast four days, four nights, you're going to be hungry, okay? It doesn't matter if you're the son of God, okay? So he was hungry. And, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him, by the whole, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you. How arrogant is Satan in this, saying, I will give this to you, right? But all this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So much in this story we could talk about, but first off, there's some parallels I want you to notice. You may have noticed this before, but if you look back in, the, in Genesis 3, to the temptation in the garden, really, Satan tempted Eve with three things. You may want to jot this down. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. But he tempted it with, them with three things. Fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. He tempted them with fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment, which if you really boil it down are are the the core things that we seek in life is fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. But then if you look at 1 John 2.16, it would say it this way. It calls those things the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's kind of the same thing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride, sorry, and the pride of one's possessions, or pride of life, depending on your translation. And in Jesus' temptation, he gets tempted in the exact same ways. In the exact same ways. You know, he's tempted with fulfillment by the stones uh, being turned to bread. He's tempted with beauty by the glories of the kingdoms of the world. He's tempted by the pride of life, you know, by being lifted up by the angels. So Jesus is tempted in every way identically to Adam and Eve. But unlike Adam and Eve, who gave into the temptation, Jesus does not give into the temptation. And he ultimately did this not just to show that he was God, but he did this to also show that he was going to be the sinless Savior to live in our place. That when we break under like 30 seconds of temptation, he, could, he withstood 30 years of temptation. That he was the sinless Savior who had come to take on our sins for us. And he endured temptation for our salvation, ultimately. For all those uh, who, be- who would believe in him. But if you notice in this story, Satan, every time he tempts Jesus, what does he do? He uses not some kind of, you know, just random statement. He uses the Bible, right? You probably have footnotes, you know, and little cross-references in your Bible saying how Satan is quoting Scripture to Jesus. But what is he doing? He's twisting it, right? He's not using it the way it's really meant to say. He's twisting it to try to present an alternative truth in many ways. He offers a twisted truth. And this really shows us a lot about how Satan works in the world. You know, Satan doesn't come to us many times with things that just sound outright evil. He's not saying, hey, sell meth to third graders in your backyard. You know, he's not tempting you with like awful, just terrible things. You're like, I will never do that. Like, no, I'm not. Okay. He doesn't tempt us that way. But 2 Corinthians says that Satan comes to us as an angel of what? Of light, right? He comes to us and he he wants to tempt us by, you know, trying to get in touch with with our better nature. I mentioned a minute ago, he tempts us really with our sense of justice, with righteousness, with things like that. that. That's the way that Satan tries to get to us. He appeals to our senses. He appeals to our desires, even ones that sound good and that sound noble many times. But ultimately what Satan wants to do in this temptation is to push us to live a life apart from God, even if that life is a good white picket fence kind of life, as long as we seek to find our satisfaction in that life and not in God. Because that's what he wants us to live, a good, happy, easy life being deceived and not wanting anything to do with God. That's what he wants. He doesn't care how good our life is on earth. He'll make it awesome as much as he can as long as we stay away from the things of God. As long as we don't try to find our satisfaction in God, but instead try to find it in this world. He twists the truth. That's exactly what he does with Jesus here. He twists scripture. But notice how Jesus responds to even Jesus' twisted scripture. Satan's twisted scripture, sorry. Jesus responds with more Bible. You know, that he responds with Satan's twisted truth. He responds with clear truth, that Jesus goes back to Scripture. But here's the thing. He provides the right interpretation of it, right? He's not pulling Scripture out of context to to make a point that's not true. But instead, Jesus provides the right interpretation of it, and he responds with more truth. Because when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus never ran out of ammunition, right? He just kept coming back with Scripture. He never ran out of Bible verses, But when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they ran out of Bible verses pretty quick, right? They didn't really have the Bible at that time, but you get what I mean. They ran out of right responses very quickly, but Jesus did not. So what we see here is this, is that the way that we combat the temptation to manufacture our own truth that is convenient for us is by digging deeper into God's truth 
and learning to, inta- to really kind of take it deeply into our lives. Because yes, the Bible contains a lot of stuff that's hard to understand. That's why they have like seminary degrees and stuff, you know, which I'll tell you even like in seminary, I learn more about what I don't know than what I do know really in the end. <laughs> but you know, that's, it's a deep book. But here's the thing. A lot of things in the Bible are not hard to understand. And many times our struggle with obedience to the Bible is not really ignorance. It's more just straight up disobedience that in our flesh, we just don't want to do it. You know, it's not that we don't really understand it most of the time. We just in our sinful desires just don't want to say yes and do that thing or say no and do that thing. I know that's so true in my life. It's not an ignorance issue most of the time. It's a disobedience issue. So if you want to stay grounded in truth, if you want to walk in obedience to Jesus, then go deep in God's word. Read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it. You know, all those things, not just in small pieces, but even the bigger pieces. Like you don't get caught up in simply like the the small verses that can be easy to maybe take out of context, but read big chunks of the Bible sometimes too. If you don't have a Bible reading plan that takes you through different sections of scripture, get on one of those. There's so many great options on the Bible app, all over the internet to take in God's word. But just be careful to see what is the guiding principle of truth in your life. Is it culture? Or is it God's word? Uh, Sunday morning, I'm going to be preaching on Romans 12 too. And we're going to talk about how are we conform more to the world through the world's like things it tries to press us into its mold with, or are we more confirmed to conform to God's standard by allowing God's word to renew our minds? And that's the question we got to ask. Because when we do these things, when we intake God's word in this way, that's when we find the real truth that's going to expose the lies. So as we wrap up, I just want to remind us that the lie of just live your truth is not just a intellectual, philosophical kind of thing. It's not just something that you hear Oprah say or see on book covers on Amazon or whatever. But the lie of just live your truth has so many dangerous implications today when truth can be kind of distorted. Because think about this. This lie is how we've ended up killing about 350,000 baby girls every year in the name of women's rights. It's about how many girl babies are aborted every year, that we abort women babies in the name of women's rights. You know, this lie is how we fight to rightly protect the innocence of kids in their inability to consent to sexual relationships, but at the same time, we'll also say that they're mature enough to take hormone therapy, to have their gender reassigned. That we'll say one thing, but when the truth's inconvenient for what our culture wants to say, we'll flip it. That this twisted truth is dangerous. It's dangerous has so many consequences we don't think about. But it's not just for out there. It's not just for you know, the culture at large, but it's also dangerous for us in the church. That as we seek to twist scripture, as we seek to make it convenient to fit our own agenda, to fit our own preferences, we're falling into Satan's scheme just as much. So let's not fall for the lie of just, you know, just live your truth, you do you. But instead, let's look to the one that says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and follow him even when it's hard, because he has our best interest in heart. He knows what is best for us. He's trustworthy, and he's true. So with that, I want to pray for us, and then you've got three questions on that sheet that you can discuss. They'll also be up on the screen here. We'll give you guys about 15 minutes to talk through those, and then we'll come up and wrap up after that, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we love you. You are so good to us. We thank you that you are the truth in a world that even wants to so many times debate if they're even is something uh, called truth, that you have given us your truth in your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, not even just in a, in a book, in a Bible, but you revealed yourself to us in your son, who is the truth. 
And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would help us to maybe see the ways that we have maybe given to given into the lie of just only wanting to believe the truth when it's convenient to us. And I pray that you would help us to really just maybe in our heart posture tonight, just have open hands to say, God, I want to follow you no matter the cost, no matter what it requires of me, because ultimately you are worth it and you are better and you know better than even myself, that we submit our lives to you. And we ask that you would do what you want. So Lord, I pray that you would discuss or you would guide our discussion tonight. Use this time even as a way for us to apply this more to our lives so we can leave this place changed, uh, to live differently, to live boldly for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.